0: Welcome to Real Time, the podcast for and about realtors brought to you by the Canadian Real Estate Association. I'm Erin Davis, and I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode of Real Time. According to StatsCan, nearly one in four Canadians aged 15 years and over, or about 6.2 million individuals, has one or more physical disabilities. And when we listen to our guest today we can see that those numbers are only going to grow as we all continue to age. While we can't stop time, we can adjust to how we approach our futures at home. Universal Design, or UD, is an approach to creating spaces that are inclusive and equitable for those living with permanent or temporary physical disability. What are some of the misconceptions about universal design? And how is the industry evolving and adapting to growing demand, especially from an aging population that wants to age at home? In episode 20 of Real Time, we take a closer look at UD trends and opportunities. Joining us is Brad McCannell. Brad is Vice President of Access and Inclusion with the Rick Hansen Foundation. Brad, Welcome. And I think that first off, we should talk about what you have called the superpower of universal design, and that is that it's invisible.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I get asked all the time, could you send me a photograph of you know really good universal design? And the answer is no. <laughs> if you no. do it right, it's invisible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, now that we can't see it, why don't you tell us what it is? What is universal design and what's its purpose, Brad?
1: There's seven principles of universal design, but in a nutshell, what it's designed to do is be um, the most good for the most people. It's designed to uh, allow people to uh, interact with their built environment easily. It's designed to let them have flexibility in use, for example. It's, it's simple. It's intuitive. There's a great quote, and, I, and I, I feel bad because I can't credit the person, but the quote was, uh, to err is human, to forgive is design. Oh. That's what you do as a designer. You make whatever you're working with interface with the human, and and the human now doesn't have to do anything. So the better the design, the more invisible design, the easier it is to interact with things, then the better off everyone is.
0: Well, how, then, is UD, universal design, different from, say, accessible design? Ah,
1: now we're into the weeds. Universal design it, it refers to making the most good for the most people. Uh, Accessible design uh, used to be called barrier-free design. And sometimes you see universal design and barrier-free design used interchangeably. The reality is accessible design is a specific solution for a specific application for a specific user. So by way of example, universal design says everything should be the same so it works for everyone. You can't do that in a parking lot every space would have to be uh, oversized. Right. You can't do that in a washroom. All the stalls would have to be enormous so that washrooms themselves would be enormous. So in those applications, that's what accessible design is. It came out of the post-war, actually, when people were coming back from the war with mobility impairments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wanted to get Uncle Frank into the local church. Well, you just built a ramp on the back door. Now, the ramp was usually about 45 degrees. Mm-hmm. But the point was to get... Into the church, and you'd sit in the back, and everything would be fine. And it was like, okay, that's done. But barrier-free design doesn't accommodate the needs of the, the most of the people. It only accommodates that specific need. And you know, in the church case, you'd have to be pushed up the ramp. You couldn't be independent. And so, and in, in washrooms and and parking lots, it's just not practical to apply universal design in every spot. At the same time, universal principles still apply, even though you're only doing ten percent or twenty percent of the parking lot in oversized spaces.
0: Well, universal design, you have said, because I'm quoting you from a great piece you wrote for RickHanson.com in 2018, liberating. It doesn't rely on standard design parameters aimed at healthy males aged 18 to 55. And you point out that when a place works for everyone, say a park with even surfacing on trails, which we saw up in Parksville, British Columbia, just last month, and around accessible playground equipment, suddenly more people show up, grandma shows up, more Uh kids with range of abilities show up, because they can.
1: Isn't that interesting, eh? Yeah. Isn't that the very nature of inclusion? People forget that inclusion is a result. It's it's not a discipline. Inclusion is the result of accessibility. And accessibility breeds accessibility. The more access you create, the more access you're gonna need, because it brings people out. Like in the early 70s, uh, curb ramps started happening but they were designed for high-functioning paraplegics. Mm. But who did it benefit? Well, it benefited the whole community. It benefited people pushing baby carriages, and people pushing dollies. And then what happened as medical science moved on, quadriplegics like myself, suddenly we were out on the streets, and now the curb ramp benefited us as well. But to benefit us, it had to be a little better. It had to be a little less steep. It brought out people with vision loss. So, But to accommodate people with vision loss, what we had to do was make sure there was high-contrast markings on the curb ramp, tactile markings on the curb ramp, so they'd be aware they walked into traffic. So the more access you create, the more access you're going to need. And that's a really good thing, because that means you're getting inclusion in the community. That means you're keeping people active and involved.
0: One of the myths that you've spoken about is that disability happens to other people. And so universal design doesn't reflect My needs. But that really is short sighted, isn't it? And I think it's a little Pollyanna ish too to think, well, nothing's ever going to happen to me. But when we look at the statistics, and of course the ever aging demographic, chances are if you design with universal design in mind, then you are actually paving the way. You're building that less steep ramp that Uncle Frank had to your own future, your own access and ability.
1: Well, this goes to one of the core messages, it's this idea that all this access stuff and all these, these laws and regulations are pointed at a few people with mobility impairments, a few wheelchair users. And that's just couldn't be further from the truth. You do a faceplant, you're skiing as a teenager and you end up in a wheelchair, or you're 85 and you need a walker, you're going to have a disability. In our community, we call able-bodied people
0: TABS. What's that stand for?
1: You're temporarily able-bodied.
0: Ah. It's only a
1: matter of time before you're going to require some assistance in some form. And frankly, it's the older adults and seniors that are really driving the numbers right now. The numbers are going through the ceiling. A 1,000 people turn 65 every day in Canada. 240,000 people retire every year in Canada. And this is a really unique group from a disability perspective because there's two characteristics of them. Number one, they're in complete denial. You know, it's the old, my eyes are five, arms aren't long enough. <laughs> yes. uh, I, I can hear a fine if you'd stop mumbling. <laughs> so it, it, there's this real, real denial. And the second thing is, they don't have a disability. They have multiple disabilities. They'll have m- mobility loss combined with hearing loss. They'll have vision loss combined with cognitive issues. They'll have every combination under the sun. And that's that label disabled component we talk about all the time. Often you'll see a power door operator, and it'll have that little blue guy on it, a little blue stick man. And it's just vexing to our community because what happens when you push that button? Does a little blue genie in a wheelchair suddenly appear and grant you five wishes? No. When you push that button, the door opens. Why isn't it to say open door? Why do I have to be labeled disabled? That power operator helps so many people. Mm -hmm. People carrying boxes, people in a hurry, people pushing a wheelchair, people pushing a carriage. It opens the door. That's part of the universal design concept. Stop labeling people. Stop using disabled language to describe built environment. If you do it right, you don't have to use that kind of language. And if you stop that, then you stop the labeling, then you're stopping segregation. And that's what it really is right now. You go to a bank and there's a lowered teller at the far end. And that's where I'm supposed to go. And I go there and I sit. And I'm ignored or not seen, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that with any other group. Could you say all the blondes have to go to the counter at the end? Could you say you know anybody with, of color has to go sit over there? So it's really vexing to be labeled disabled constantly. It, it, just, it starts touching on the idea of, of us being non-market housing and setting aside 10 you know, percent of some development for people with disabilities, whatever that means. Mm. Segregation is it? It's one of our biggest problems, actually. It's the attitudinal barrier.
0: Well, let me take you back to the bank for a second. Ideally, Brad, what would you like to see there?
1: Universal counters. If all the counters were the same and all the counters were universal and provided knee space, it's just no work. This isn't really tricky design or anything. Mm. All you do is you provide knee space on a standard counter for everyone. It works for everyone. You know, if you go to Vancouver International Airport, you may notice, you probably won't notice, all the counters are at a universal height. All the food courts, all the tables, they're at that universal height and and it works for everyone. Whereas having a high counter for tellers and one lowered at the other end, you can't help but segregate.
0: You've just brought something up that I think we're all going to notice from here on in. I hope so. When we return... Brad McCannell from the Rick Hansen Foundation tells us how he's going about changing the way we think about design and the role of advocates in helping us to do so. We hope you're enjoying this 20th episode of Real Time. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for monthly episodes with someone else who knows design. TV icon Sarah Richardson as well as award-winning author Jesse Thistle, broadcast and marketing legend Terry O'Reilly, and political journalist Chantal Hébert, just to name a few. Visit crea.ca slash podcast for more details. Brad, you're responsible for the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program and Support Training. What is this trademarked accessibility certification? First I'll
1: say it's an industry program, it's not a consumer program. Okay. It's a process that we undertook to change design culture, to help the people in the industry to understand the return on investment that's there that's being just left on the street. So ours is a program that identifies what's actually there. We're not the code police. We don't come in and tell people, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. We identify what's really there and who it affects, who's it a barrier to. And so that as an owner or operator, you can take our report, look at your site, and use it as a planning tool moving forward so that it becomes part of the normal design process instead of something added after the fact or something you need special funding for. So what we're trying to do is normalize the delivery of accessible services, and we're trying to professionalize the delivery of it. Right now, we've been relying pretty heavily on the advocates to tell people what's accessible, what's not, and then find the solutions for that. And that's just not appropriate. Advocates are critical. Without advocates, nothing happens. Their job is to identify the barriers, but their job can't be to resolve the barriers. They don't have the experience in the built environment. They're not architects. They're not planners. They're not engineers. What we had to do is shift that industry. We had to shift the culture in that industry to see the built environment differently. And we've had great
0: success with that so far. So who is it that should pursue accessibility certification then, Brad?
1: Accessibility certification should be pursued by anyone who wants their site to be accessible. Anyone who wants to understand where their site is right now. Our program identifies what's actually there and it becomes a perfect planning tool. It breaks any site down into eight different categories so the operator can look at it and in one glance, see where they're weak, where they're strong. And use it as a planning tool. The idea is to use the RHFAC Accessibility Certification Program as a starting point, not as an end. Too often people think, well, I'm going to get this rating and now, you know, I'm an RHFAC gold or I'm an RHFAC certified site and I'll just stop there. No, that's where you start. That's the beginning. The value of the program is that you can see now what your site needs and how you can move it forward is part of the normal process, as part of your normal operating process. The whole goal for us is to move accessibility up the design food chain. What happens right now is this building gets designed, they get it permitted, they pour concrete, and then they phone me and say, can we make it accessible? Oh. No, I can't. <laughs> I can do what we call bolt-on access. Oh. I can put on a power door, I can put a hearing loop over a reception desk, or I can Work the mailroom, so some of the uh, mail slots are accessible. I can do little things, but I can't affect the core design principles of the building. And that's what you have to do to really meet universal design requirements.
0: What kind of demand or interest, Brad, is there for universal design in Canada, residentially and commercially?
1: Well, it's just enormous. It's driven largely by the older adults and seniors. Mm -hmm. We just did an Angus Reid poll, and it was really interesting because it was the first time individuals recognize the shortcomings of their own environment. In the past, people have always said, oh yeah, 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 access is good. You know, those people need that. This is the first time people went, wow, wait a minute, we had 56 percent of our respondents saying that access was a concern whenever they went out for dinner or lunch or shopping. You know, what the house they buy, car they buy, everything, 56 percent of people would prioritize accessibility. Every, you know, Right now, in Canada, we report, well, 24% report having a significant disability. Mm-hmm. Every one of those people have at least one other person in their life that also benefit from a barrier-free environment, from an accessible environment. And they benefit on two levels. First, they benefit because I benefit. So if it's good for me, it's probably good for them. But they also benefit because a, a, a universal space... Keeps them safer. So when they're assisting, when they're helping me, they aren't in danger of becoming people with disabilities themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has at least one person in their life—a lover, mother, brother, sister, paid caregiver. Mm-hmm. They all have somebody in their lives that also benefits. So it's not twenty-four percent of the population; it's fifty percent, or even higher. Most of us have more than one person.
0: Sure.
1: So this idea that we're non-market is so vexing. Because that's part of the problem. If we were viewed as part of the market, as your listeners today will testify, they're working with older adults and seniors every day. They may not stand up and hold up their hands and say, I have a disability, because remember, they're in denial. But there's no question that it benefits them in every way. And so it's absolutely clear that we need to keep people independent in their own homes, in their own communities, as long as possible, in reality, forever. Yeah. the moment grandma can't go to the arena and watch her son play hockey because she's afraid of the tripping hazards on the sidewalk or the the stairs in the arena or you know, mm. even opening the door to the arena the moment that happens a little thread breaks in the community <sighs> you know she's not part of her grandson's life anymore yeah and the more those threads break the more the whole community starts to break down and the other big thing here is is let's not forget how universal designs, One of its biggest attributes is it allows for intergenerational family living in a single home. Grandma can stay with you, and that's a really important point. We tend to ship our our older adults and seniors off, and other cultures don't. Other cultures revere their elders, Mm -hmm. and we seem to be content to let that go, and we've seen the consequences of that now.
0: Back with Brad McCannell in just a moment with an eye-opening take on disability, you and me. Whether disability is caused by the natural effects of aging or by accident or injury, the simple truth is that each one of us will experience disability at some point in our lives and will need our communities to be accessible so that we can continue to participate and live full lives. The Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program works to help improve accessibility of the built environment in Canada. The places where we live, work, learn, and play. Find out more about the program and join the movement to help create a fully accessible and inclusive Canada by visiting rickhansen.com become accessible. Now, back to Brad McCannell. Vice President of Access and Inclusion with the Rick Hansen Foundation. Obviously, everything you're talking about is improving lives for all of us. But why do you think, Brad, homeowners who do not have lived experience with disability, why should they consider implementing universal design in their properties?
1: Everyone should consider making their homes more accessible. Everyone's going to have a disability. And it's also frighteningly easy to do, at least at the design stage. It's harder on a retrofit. I get that. Mm. We are the largest minority group in the world, people with disabilities. We're the only one that any one of you can and will join at any moment. You know, you twist an ankle and fall down the stairs. You have a car accident. You have a medical issue. You are going to be a person with a disability. It's totally inevitable. I happen to live in what would be considered a resort community, about an hour outside of Vancouver. All of my neighbors have built these homes as their retirement. They, they view this as the last home they're going to have. They're going to settle in. It's going to be beautiful for the rest of their lives. And I can't visit them. I can't get in their front door. Mm. In the house, they've got stairs. I know one particular house, this person has been designing for decades and, and couldn't wait to retire. And she's been in the home now for three years and she can't get upstairs to the bedroom anymore. Oh, wow. You have to think about this stuff. Whether you like it or not, it's going to change. So if we as a community don't start adopting universal design principles, if we don't start building homes that anticipate the needs of the users, if the fix to the house is so enormous that you have to move because you can't handle the stairs. Some people talk about stair glides and things like that. I'm not in favor of them. I think they're a very last resort, personally. But when you're designing the homes, one of the simple fixes that Safer Home Society advocates, and Safer Home Society, by the way, I highly recommend, if you want to know about accessible housing at a single-family home level, the saferhomesociety.com is a great resource. But one of the things they talk about all the time, especially in new construction, is how you can align closets. So the closets on the first floor and the closet on the second floor are over top of each other. And when you're building the house, you make that an elevator shaft. At the time of construction, the cost is really nominal. But to put in an elevator after the fact, it's in the $100,000 range. Right. Even if you're not going to be the one to get old in it, by creating that universal aspect of the home, you're increasing the value of the home because the next buyer may need it. But if the house can anticipate the needs of the user, if there's backing in the walls that you can let you put a grab bar anywhere you need it, not just where the code says it goes. Mm. If there's backing in the ceiling, so you can put in a overhead lift. So you know, one day you may need to lift that picks you out of your bed and takes you to the bathroom. Right. If that's all built in, it's remarkably inexpensive, and in fact, it's one of the things that pays for itself. Because right now, what happens is they complete a house. There's a big pile of leftover lumber, mm-hmm. and they put it in that truck and they ship it off to the dump. Boom! There goes your lead rating because you just dump a bunch of stuff in the landfill gather up that wood, and pound it into the framing. It doesn't have to be pretty. It's all going to be covered anyway. So you can now install ceiling lifts or grab bars or whatever you need, and you don't have to pay to ship it. You don't have to send it to the landfill. You leave your lead rating alone.
0: That's brilliant.
1: Simple things like this. There's simple solutions all over the place.
0: Now, are there many home builders, contractors, and designers in Canada who specialize in universal design, and how does a homeowner go about finding them?
1: Yes, there are lots, in fact, but this is part of the problem. There's no governing body, there's no single group that can certify whether they actually know what they're talking about or not. Again, the RHFAC, the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program, we stepped in there and we said, that has to change. So we accredit people. People taking our course then have the opportunity to take an exam administered by the CSA Group, Canadian Standards Association, completely independent of us. And they will test you for your level of knowledge. Do you understand universal design? And now we have an accredited person who's taken a course and been examined by a third party and said, yeah, that guy knows what he's talking about.
0: Brad, what do you think, what steps can a realtor take to advocate for clients who are living with permanent or temporary physical disabilities while they're in the home buying and selling process? What do you think?
1: Well, realtors are key to this whole process. Nobody's closer than your listeners. To the real needs of the community they must see it every day i would encourage them to help consumers demand more it's completely unacceptable to use what's called the medical model the medical model says you have a disability you figure out how to overcome the barrier and the social model says no why don't we build places that are universal why don't we embrace the community more why does that person have to be labeled and excluded Mm -hmm. there's an old joke in our business If you want to know how good a restaurant is, you ask a wheelchair guy because he probably came in through the kitchen. Oh, And it's that old idea that any access will do. That's that barrier-free design approach. It won't. And I think realtors are in a position to talk to developers about this, to say that the market is there, to say that people with disabilities, older adults and seniors are not non-market, that we are market and we need more. And if you design your building properly, that becomes a huge asset. One of the other problems, especially in single-family dwellings, for example, if if you're injured at work and and WorkSafeBC comes into the play, they will typically allow $150,000 worth of renovations to your home because now you're a wheelchair user and you have to be able to live there. And so you got that $150,000, and the OTs come in, the occupational therapists come in, and they slap grab bars all over the place, and, and they turn your house into an institution. And while that's really functional... And nobody wants to live in an institution. But the real problem comes when you go to sell that house because an able-bodied person, they come and look at the house and they want to buy it. But how much would it cost to get all that wheelchair stuff out? How much to take it back to the house it was instead of the institution it became? Well, it's about $150,000. Now you've got a $300,000 swing in real estate value at the time you can least afford it. Mm. The thing about universal design is it, it's, it's beautiful. You know, if you've done it right, It's invisible. It has the advantage of making your house look bigger because the way it opens up space. But if you don't, if you label it disabled, if you turn it into an institution, it's going to kill the real estate fund. So what can realtors do? They can help developers understand that we are not non-market. They help them understand the return on investment that's available here. Hmm. The realtors' role here is just absolutely key because they're the interface between the developer and the, and the real users. You know, when you're dropping this kind of money on a house or a condo or whatever you're buying, the cost of making it accessible is so minuscule. You know, we did a big study on a condominium development they did that showed unequivocally that it cost less than $1,000 per unit to make it universal, to make it work under the Safer Home System, to make it work for older adults and seniors, to make it work for wheelchair users. Less than $1,000 a unit. I'm sorry, that's not even the carrying costs of the money it takes to build one of those things. It's invisible.
0: Right, right. When we return, how Brad has integrated accessibilities in ways that we've all experienced and seen, or not seen in the case of that invisibility to which he refers. Here's a staggering number for you. Just last year, there were 374 million visits to the Realtor.ca platform, and visitors looked at property pages 1.7 billion, yeah, with a B, times. Be sure to make the most of those visitors with the tools provided to you through your CREA membership. Now, let's return to our chat with Brad McCannell, VP of Access and Inclusion with the Rick Hansen Foundation making travel and homes friendlier for us all. You talk about the invisibility of it. Tell me what you've done in your own situation, Brad, that is functional, that is beautiful, that is something that we can all kind of imagine in our own lives if we decide to go ahead and do this. Well,
1: uh, let me give you two examples. One is a large public building, Vancouver International Airport. Mm -hmm. I've had the great pleasure of working with them now Well, since 1992, so it's been a 30-year journey. What we've been able to do there is change the corporate culture to ask a really simple question before any project is completed, how will this affect people with disabilities? And that airport is, I think, uh, nine years now running, voted the best airport in North America. Wow. And a large part of that evaluation is customer service. We do exit surveys at YVR and, and a couple of years back we focused on older adults and seniors and people with disabilities and, and we asked them, how did you find the airport? How was it for you? And the answer was, it's great! Why? Don't know. Yeah. That's the perfect answer. If you don't know, then you weren't handled differently. You weren't separated from your family to go to a special counter. You didn't have to get pushed under some tunnels under the airport like in Toronto to get to the airport. You know, making that space work, that's a true universal space. Next time you're there, look around, you won't see the little wheelchair guy. He's not on the counters, he's not on the washrooms. You might see him in hold rooms, there's a few seats reserved. But that's because everything works for everyone. We've taken the labels off, we made it work for everyone. So from a public building perspective is that. From a housing perspective, you know, I've been telling people how to build things for 30 years. I just recently built my little dream house. Outside of Vancouver, and I thought, if I'm going to do this, I better get it right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I spent a great deal of time working on universal design principles and applying them to my own home. And I defy anybody to tell that somebody, a quadriplegic especially, but a wheelchair user, lives in my house. None of the telltale signs are there. There's no grab bars. I don't use grab bars. You know, in most wheelchair homes, about eight inches up on the on the wall, there's a, a black mark that runs around mostly the whole house, but usually around corners. And that's the front caster catching that outside 90-degree corner when you're going into your kitchen, for example, when you're going to a bathroom. Universal Design says, no, 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 don't do that. Make that a 45-degree angle. Cut that off, even by 6 inches. And suddenly now there's no impact point there. When you see a mark on the wall or a piece of drywall that's been carved, you see a maintenance problem. When I see it, I see a health problem. I see a collision problem. Somebody's hit that. Now, as a wheelchair user, I'm pretty good. I can ram things and and survive pretty well. But when mom is on a cane or a crutch and she catches that wall or her walker hits that wall, then you're introducing a falling hazard into the home. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about universal design is how it makes your home safer. It literally removes falling hazards, tripping hazards. And that's really important. And the best example I can give you is in a typical residential setting, in a bathroom, we put the sink, the toilet, and the tub. All those controls and water lines are on the same wall. And we do that to make it easy for the plumber. I don't care about the plumber, Mm -hmm. I care about my mother. And she walks in there and she steps between the toilet and the tub with one foot. And she leans way over to turn on the tub. And if she's going to fall, that's where she's going to fall. And if she falls there and breaks her hip, she has a 20% chance of being dead in a calendar year. She has a 50% chance of never getting out of an institution. And so why are we doing this for the plumber? And I've had arguments with, with architects. Well, we can't make it any bigger. Real estate space is just too expensive. We can't have a bigger bathroom. Okay, pick the tub up. Turn it 180 degrees and set it back down in the same space. Now the controls are on an open wall. If you want to go crazy, let's just go absolutely insane here for a second. Let's take the controls and move them six inches closer to the edge of the tub. So now she's not even leaning over. Mm. Just anecdotally, I think you could reduce falls in the home by 20% by doing just something that simple. None of this is rocket science. There's a feeling that while I can't create uh, accessible because I, I don't have a big enough footprint. Universal design is your best friend in small spaces. It makes things work for everybody so much easier and it's all about reach requirements and those kinds of things.
0: And putting plugs in in different places too, electrical outlets. Oh yeah,
1: you know, especially on a new build, it costs about 7 bucks to put a, an outlet in in a new build it costs about 3000 to do it if you have to rip the drywall out. Mhm. So, why not put a plug Behind your toilet. Why not put a plug beside your main entry door and your main exit door? Because someday you may want a power door operator on that. Ah. Why not throw some plugs over by the windows so that you can operate the drapes with a remote? Mm-hmm. Or the windows, too. You know, when you when you design a home, in, in my home, I use crank-style windows because I can pull that crank off and put a little motor on that. Now I can operate the windows from my bed. If you're going to automate your home, you need these AC outlets everywhere. If you, At a design stage, at the, at the construction stage, just throw them in. The more, the merrier. The other thing you want to do is you want to lift up all the outlets up by 6 inches. And you want to bring all the switches down by 6 inches. And now everything's within reach of most people. And it doesn't look weird. Sometimes people raise the outlets way too high, and it looks horrible. You plug something in, there's a big cable hanging down the wall. Mm-hmm. But lifting it 6 inches puts it within the range of, 80 or more percent of the community if you can keep mum from bending down it's a bonus if you can put in a touch faucet touch faucets are amazing you don't have to have dexterity to turn them on or off there's a little light on there that tells you the temperature of the water without touching it it's not thought of as a disability thing and that's great it really works for my darling wife when she's baking and her hands are covered in flour and gook she doesn't want to touch the faucet right there's a million little things you can do to make it work the biggest barrier to all people with disabilities is the attitudinal barrier. Preconceived notions of what we're capable of or not capable of. Preconceived notions of us being non-market somehow. The biggest barrier to overcome is what people think we can do and what we can't do, what we might want. My boss, Rick Hansen, said it best decades ago when he was talking about his own home. And he was talking to the developer and he said, I just want a normal house. I don't want to live in an institution. I don't want to live in a place that looks like an institution. I just want a normal house. And it's easy to do. It's functional. It pays dividends because it increases the value of the home, especially as more and more people need this. It's an opportunity for everybody to come on board and understand the return on investment. This is not something we're asking you to do because, gee, it's great because moms are amazing and wouldn't we like to help the community and, gee, guys, I know, let's do this really nice thing. There's money to be made here.
0: Brad, as we bring this conversation, which has been so enlightening and perfect to a close, let's fast forward a few months, can we? How do you want to describe the rest of the year? Like in three words? Oh,
1: three words. Okay. How uh, <laughs> about finally making progress? Yeah. You know, the National Accessible Canada's Act has been a big push forward. BC now stepped up with accessibility legislation and doing an amazing job through Sam Turcott and his team. I think that we're finally getting the message through. And that message of return on investment is coming through. I think industry has finally been brought to the table. In the past, what's been happening is people demand higher code requirements and, and more uh, enforcement. And I, I, I agree that's absolutely critical. You have to have that. But the industry was never brought to the table. They were always said, okay, you will do this now. and, and That just doesn't work. Finally, through the RHFAC program, we're getting industry to the table. We're helping them understand the return on investment and uh, helping them understand why it's so important that this be done at a cultural level. I've got great hope for the coming year, and I've got great hope for the years beyond that. And I, my fervent dream is to be unemployed as soon as possible because they don't need a consultant on, on disability anymore because it's part of the natural culture.
0: Thanks for sharing your insight with us here today and the inspiration of the message that this is just so accessible. Thanks so much, Brad. We really appreciate your time and your wisdom. And we'll be watching to see more progress. Thanks to people like you and the Rick Hansen Foundation and the Accessibility Certification Program. And a reminder to visit rickhansen.com and look at the five myths that Brad McCannell has written. It's just fantastic. And remember
1: that while we may be perceived as the leader's it's the people doing the work, and it's your listeners. Real estate agents, realtors generally, can make a huge change here just by being aware of this, just by demanding more, just by stepping up and, and being the voice. We are maybe leading the thing, yeah, we get, we get you know, the nice labels, we get the government grants, but the heavy lifting is done by your listeners, so I, I really appreciate this
0: opportunity. And we appreciate it too. A reminder to go to rickhansoncom become dash accessible to learn more and make that difference that Brad McCannell, Vice President of Access and Inclusion with the Rick Hansen Foundation, talks about. Thank you for joining us here today on this episode of Real Time, brought to you by the Canadian Real Estate Association, produced by Rob Whitehead for Real Family Productions and Alphabet Creative. Be sure to check out all of our episodes and subscribe so you don't miss any more great guests, including in episode 21, Real Estate Visionary Stefan Swanepoel. I'm Erin Davis, and we'll talk to you again soon on Real Time.